Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily and search for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to little children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds of inferiority forming every day in their little mental skies. And as we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of blasted hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. America. Some are Mexican-Americans, some are Puerto Ricans, some are Indians, some happen to be from other groups. Millions of them are Appalachian whites. Probably the largest group in this other America in proportion to its size in the population is the American Negro. The American Negro finds himself living in a triple ghetto, a ghetto of race, a ghetto of poverty, a ghetto is to deal with this problem, to deal with this problem of the two Americas. Okay, so that was the late Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. giving a speech titled The Other America um, sometime in 1960. And 
Nemo and I are not going to react to that um, speech at this time. So Nemo, you listen to it. What are your initial thoughts, your initial emotions? Yeah, I think for me, I it's hard not to think about your own life when he speaks kind of throughout the journey of what someone experiences as they're going through the country, as they're going living in America. Um, and I think about my own family structure of my mom growing up in Louisiana in the South and my dad coming from Nigeria and West Africa. And so I feel like I've seen the American dream from both immediate family and extended family, the American dream from a perspective that starts in the U.S. South, which has a whole other context, and then a perspective that starts overseas and the hope of like, I want to get over there to get this American dream, to have this opportunities to get education. Um, and then because of those sacrifices, I think about my own childhood. And he had said how, I mean, it made me think about just how much we know about how childhood impacts your present day mental health. And he mentioned the little mental skies and the, some of the shattered dreams that people are having to face in this other America. Um, and yeah, so I just think about what I've seen from kind of both of those sides and how where you start in this country can unfortunately or fortunately be a foundation for what your opportunities are just simply based on where you live or how much parents or wealth, how much money or wealth your parents had access to. How did you feel about it? My initial reaction was sadness. Um, and I don't know, something about his voice that is all, it always like resonates in the bottom of your soul. It's just like, it reverberates literally. And so- Like get that lump in your throat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so my initial reaction was sadness and I found myself thinking, you know, well, how many Americans are still living in that other America? I know that this speech was given sometime um, 50 or 60 years ago and so I just kind of the purpose of this episode but I started to really think about if he was alive today how his perception of America from the perspective of a white person which was the first America he described in the perspective of a non-white person which was the later America how that would be different, how it would be similar and what aspects of it would remain the same and what progress would still need um, to be done. So that is kind of the purpose of this episode. Um, we are recording this on January 19th. And so this is now 54 years since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. So we felt it befitting to have an episode to not only commemorate his legacy and all the work that he had done and contributed to the civil rights movement and, and kind of was the, the main proponent of the civil rights movement, but in addition to that, we wanted to take a look at some data as it pertains to um, economics and socioeconomic status and health status of Black Americans and particularly how our numbers and those categories have changed over time and so that was that's the purpose of this episode but before we jump in to that in more detail I just want to take some time to acknowledge his impact Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. worked significantly and tirelessly and unfortunately was murdered for his 
contributions to improving not just the socioeconomic position of black Americans but as you hear in his speech of all people of color who were non-white and his work made it possible for immigrants into this country post the civil rights era to immerse themselves in society and not individually have to go through their own civil rights battle there was never the need for a um, Hispanic American particular civil rights battle. The bill is not specific to Black Americans. It's specific to all races, all ethnicities, all religions. And so his efforts enabled all people of backgrounds that are non-white and Protestant to succeed in this country. And so the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Bill are all federal policies that have state and local kind of consequences because of the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and into his into their other credits, Malcolm X and several others. And so I just wanted to highlight that as we jump into kind of the structure of today's episode. Yeah, I think you you mentioned it was been 54 years since he was murdered. Um, I think I read something this week about how he would have been 93 years old today. Um, which we do see a lot of people who still live to be that age, but he was killed when he was 39. And so all of the different changes and movements that he could have been a part of if he lived to see them. And, uh, you know, we, all we have is his legacy that we're kind of talking about today, but just kind of thinking about where, how much greater the impact could have been. Um, so as Jasmine mentioned, we wanted to take this time, take this episode during MLK week, um, as some places call it, to talk about how different categories of social life, quality of life, um, economic indicators, um, educational indicators, um, health indicators, and look at how they have changed for Black Americans in the last 60 years. Um, and so there are a lot of resources out there that have done similar work um, all over the country and abroad to examine this impact from kind of a policy standpoint. And so we're just taking our little four degrees approach today <laughs> um, and giving you all a taste. But I encourage you to take a look at some of these numbers um, and we'll have a lot of the information in the show notes. So we're going to first talk about the indicators that we looked at that represent a decline in uh, um, Black American growth, as you could say, or like upward mobility. Um, and then we'll also talk about the indicators that are staying about the same compared in the last 60 years. Um, and then uh, the good news is that most of the indicators are improving a lot. Um, and so we'll spend the, the majority of time talking about what's, what's been improving all while still acknowledging the long way we have to go. Like I said, his legacy was a start um, and there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. So I have the unfortunate pleasure of listing the sole indicator that we found that unfortunately had a negative decline between um, the 1960 civil rights era and present day times. And so that figure is home ownership. There's been a lot of discussion around the home ownership gap and how that contributes to the wealth gap between white Americans and black Americans. So I just want to reference that um, 
I want to reference those numbers in advance. So the 1973 American Community Survey found home ownership rates of 67% for white Americans and 43% for black Americans, as well as 43% for Hispanic Americans of any race. The 2017 American Community Survey, which we looked at the five-year estimates, which takes an aggregate of 2012 to 2017, it found a 41.3% um, rate of homeownership around among Black Americans. And so there was unfortunately a decline, a decline of about two percentage points. So not a very huge decline, but a decline nonetheless. And it's important to note that a majority of that decline is due to the 2008 financial crisis. In 2000 and in 2000, Black homeownership reached its peak of about 47%, which would have been an increase from 1973. The, that number continued to decline steadily with the advent of the financial crisis, which dealt with a lot of foreclosures for Americans across the country, but also Black Americans disproportionately. And so I just want to reference this data by saying that even the 43% of home ownership for Black Americans in 1973 is a really revolutionary number, in my opinion, just because there was federal policy in place in 1934 up until the Fair Housing Act of 1968 that made it nearly impossible for Black Americans, people of color, people of non-Christian religions to obtain mortgages, to purchase homes, um, and particularly to do so in in neighborhoods that did not 100% match their identity. And so there were federal, state, and local barriers put in place to prevent Black people from owning homes up until 1968. So that number in 1973, for me at 43%, is a, it's a surprising number, honestly. And it's unfortunate, however, to see the decline now in 2017. I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough, how the great recession has the reverberating impacts that it has on home ownership um because i think a lot of times the trends that are the trends that are discussed in home buying and home purchasing they don't necessarily break out for race like you know like oh the housing market's really hot right now or everyone's buying or you know we see the development and revitalization and um uh, change in neighborhoods from what they were 20 plus years ago. Um, but if we look around, I mean, that, that, that's a whole other conversation around the gentrification piece of it. But when you look around, it's not Black people who are able to buy homes at the same rate, um, even after that, that, that crisis in the, in the housing market. Yeah, the housing numbers are a very interesting place. I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about this, um, particularly as you relate to gentrification. Homes in Black neighborhoods are becoming more valuable, but they weren't that way when the population was predominantly Black, and they become that way as the population of Black Americans decreases. And there's a whole slew of research on how homes that are owned by Black people are undervalued, even though they might be of similar age and quality and in similar types of neighborhoods, there's just undervalued by the sheer fact of a Black family residing within them. And so while homeownership brings wealth, the wealth is based in the equity and the value or the presumed value of your home. And if 
homes of black people are artificially being brought down and that's extracting wealth from them automatically but that's a whole conversation let's get into i just have one more thing yeah go ahead (laughs) (laughs) i know this 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 never gets me hot but um I think about, well, we're going to really get into this in terms of what the other social and economic factors that come into play. But I think about that when it comes time to be approved for a mortgage, um, what your credit score has to be having a consistent income, um, having showing uh, consistency in employment, um, and even access to education to maybe know about certain programs that may be able to help. Um, And I think all those factors that we'll talk about how they can they're doing okay, but they can improve. I think about as potential limitations to to more Black people uh, gaining home ownership as well. But I'm gonna leave it there. <laughs> I'm gonna leave it there. Um, so now we're gonna move into the two indicators that stayed about the same in the last um, 60 years or so, with a little asterisk on on the first one, which is around health and nutrition. And then I'll talk about. Um, incarceration rates a little bit later. Um, And so in terms of health and nutrition, um, one thing to note is that a lot of the information did not, was not collected in the 1960s, especially on any terms of like a racial, of a racial breakdown. So a lot of this data is new. So try to pull as much of it as I can to kind of tell the story of health um, from a physical um, nutrition standpoint. Um, And so first looking at food insecurity. And so the United States Department of Agriculture defines food insecurity as a household level economic and social condition of limited or uncertain access to adequate food. Um, And so in 2001, when they first started looking at this um, for black non-Hispanic households, their percentage of food insecurity was a little over 20%. Um, And uh, in uh, the latest numbers in 2020, um, and there's been some bumps as a result of the Great Recession, as we just talked about, and also COVID, but Blacks are still at about 21.7%. So literally no change in the last 20 years in terms of food insecurity. And we've talked in past episodes about built environment, access to grocery stores. Um, And so those things come into play when you think about food insecurity as well. Um, But it's also directly related to income in a lot of situations. So 35% of households with annual incomes below the poverty line were also food insecure. Um, as it you know makes sense, are you able to afford access to healthy um, and adequate food options, um, which then also ties into obesity um, and the, the types of foods that you eat. Um, and so the um, I'm forgetting what BMI stands for. <laughs> Body mass index. Yes, thank you. Got Always you. got me with the acronyms. Um, so that is a scale that determines how overweight. Um, that is what uh, medical professionals will use to determine the overweight um, to underweight to obese rate like scale that somebody is. Um, and so they found that in between 1960 and 1962, Black women who were over the age of 20 um, had a difference in their body mass index from about 24% of Basically, to make this simple, 24% of white women were considered overweight and 42% of black women were considered overweight in 19, in the early 1960s, 
Whereas in 2005 and 2008, both the weight of, by the like amount of like pounds increased um, from 2.4 to, which is about five pounds to 3.4 um, kilograms, um, which I can assume is maybe around eight pounds or so. Um, but then the per percentage of white women who were considered overweight was 46% in the early 2000s and 66% of black women were considered overweight. Um, and so there's a whole other conversation around national trends and processed foods in this country and, um, and weight gain from childhood to adulthood. Um, but you're still seeing the space between the percentage of white women who are um, who are overweight and black women who are overweight. I think going back to the food insecurity piece, because um, we'll talk about how poverty and unemployment were improvements um, among black people during this time period. But it's interesting that the food insecurity level kind of stayed the same, because you would think that as our median household incomes improved and poverty rate declined and unemployment rate declined, we would see those similar numbers. But you bring up good points about food deserts and access to quality foods. And I recognize that the definition has in the word access to adequate food. And I'm not certain how fast food chains and how um, certain processed foods contribute to that adequate food conversation because um, of just the sheer limitation of access to quality foods um, in black and brown neighborhoods. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to look at what is defined as adequate. I mean, we can make assumptions, but um, yeah, it is interesting to see that there hasn't, that the insecurity numbers haven't changed, at least in the last 20 years. And a lot has happened in the last 20 years. So you would think, <laughs> you would think, um, but yeah, as I said, there was a bump in the great, during the great recession for all races. Um, and then it declined, started to decline again in the later parts of the 2010s. Um, and so another um, metric that is a staying, that has stayed about the same in the last um, 60 years and um, just throughout truly, um, unfortunately the US has the highest rate of imprisonment in its history. Um, and from a global perspective, we also imprison more people um, we only make up 4% of the population of the world, um, but we make up 20% of the um, imprisoned population. Um, and so in 2004, um, it's important to note that one third of black men in their twenties were either on parole, on probation or in prison. Um, and then if we look back um, in 1960, um, the black male incarceration rate was 1,313 per 100,000 people. So black men at that time were five times as likely to be incarcerated as white men. Um, and in 2010, they were six times as likely as white men to be incarcerated in federal or state prisons and local jails. Um, and so that is an increase from 1960, um, but the actual rate of imprisonment from per 100,000 people is about the same. Um, and so it was 1,313 in 1960. And then in 2019, it was about 1,000, 
240 um, black per 100,000 people. So about a doing like 90 people, <laughs> a difference in 90 people between over 100,000 people. Um, so a slight decrease from the 1960s. The incarceration is another a whole episode because there are so many laws that are designed to target behaviors of people of color. Um, and as a result, there are more opportunities for people of color to be pulled over, questioned, ticketed, arrested, um, even though rates of similar nonviolent, truly activities are prevalent among persons of all demographics. I think to a, just a minor um, issue of New York City stop and frisk policy and how it's a supposed to be a blanket policy you know we're going to stop people on the street and if they look suspicious we're going to search them for weapons and we're trying to get guns and drugs off of the streets of New York but then it ends up that a disproportionate amount of the people that are stopped are black and Hispanic males when they represent smaller portions of the New York City population and so many other laws to that same effect and so the incarceration rates to me are something that's truly impacted by the laws that we set. Right now we're dealing with nationwide reform towards marijuana and the legalization of marijuana. But years ago, black men and women were arrested at high rates for possession, for intent to sell, for very not for nominal amounts of or various amounts of marijuana. And now it's legal. And white people all over the world are I was in Philly and there was a white man at a carnival selling weed in a booth. I was like, four years ago, if I would have bought weed from somebody just outside of those state fair grounds, they would have went to jail. Right. And so it's just, you know, that's a whole nother level of issue. And so when I look at those numbers. It's it feels like something that could be a, uh, a easy fix so that they can be improved. Yeah, I think it definitely represents the decades and half a century and plus if we if we go take it back to slavery of uh, um, policies that were that are intended to to target specific populations and uh, yeah I'm gonna just stop right there because it could be it could really be a whole episode I'm just gonna plug the book the new Jim Crow and the author is escaping me but she digs and I'm pretty sure as a woman digs very deeply into those different policies um and there's another one called slavery by another name. They dig very deeply into those um, laws that target Black Americans and push them back into incarceration. I'm actually squinting because I have the book Slavery by Another Name. I think it's Douglas, a Black man. And then I think the new Jim Crow, it's like Michelle but y'all, y'all find it. Y'all, y'all, y'all will see it. Um, and uh, 
so in, now we're gonna, those are the two metrics that we looked at that are staying about the same. Now we're going to talk about the indicators that are improving. And so kind of following on the health trend, I'm going to touch on life expectancy. Um, and then we'll talk about income and employment, poverty, and kind of all of those things relate to each other as well. Um, and so for life expectancy, um, this was a metric that has been traced for a while. Um, and uh, when thinking about the life expectancy between blacks and whites from birth, um, that has improved since 1960. And so in 1960, um, the life expectancy for blacks was about 63.6 years. And the white life expectancy at birth was a little over 70 years. So about seven years disparity, um, seven years less that blacks were living compared to their white counterparts in 1960 around the civil rights movement. Um, and in 2017, that um, improved in terms of the gap, um, well, improved in terms of we as a population were living longer, but the disparity between blacks and whites um, narrowed to about three and a half years. So the life expectancy for African-Americans in 2017 was about 75.3 years. Um, and there's been a lot of interesting changes with life expectancy and data around COVID. Um, there more black people are being hospitalized and dying from COVID in this country. Um, and so in from June 2020, the life expectancy at birth for all of the US population fell um, from the pre previous year to 77.8 years. And that was the lowest the life expectancy had been since 2016. So I just want to highlight um, some important numbers when I looked at those life, life expectancy. The difference um, between life expectancy for Black Americans in 1916 and in 2017 represents about an 18% increase um, compared to white Americans, which is about a 7% increase. And so the gap has been reduced between white Americans and Black Americans and our overall growth and improvement in life expectancy outpaced that of white Americans. And so I know that there's a famous um, kind of saying by Dr. Anthony Eaton out of UC Berkeley, and I'm, I hope I got his name right again, that says your zip code determines your life expectancy. So I know, Nemo, we looked at environmental statistics as well. And so how did some of those improve as it might relate to life expectancy for Black Americans? Um, I can't say necessarily for specific statistics based on geography of like where you know, how that would require a little bit of a deeper dig into like where people live. And if that improves, I think for environmental, it's more so the trends of the policies that took place um, since the 1960s um, that were spurred out of the civil rights movement. Um, and so specifically looking at, again, where people live and uh, doing impacts and looking at the impact of any sort of environmental policy. So the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 um, required uh, um, environmental impact statements um, when uh, uh, any sort of major structural change was happening in the environment or um, anything was being built. 
Um, and then I would say, uh, I'll talk about this in a second, I think with environmental justice, that became more of a focus on not just looking at the impact of the environment, but what is the like social impact of the people who live in the space who may bear the brunt of any sort of additional pollution um, or negative externalities that could happen. Um, and then environmental racism um, started to take off in the early 1980s. Um, and that's defined as any policy practice or directive that differentially affects or disadvantages whether intended or unintended individuals, groups, or communities based on race or color. Um, and so it, it was then that there started to be a trend that certain sites that generate more pollution were intentionally being put in black neighborhoods. Um, and a lot of these neighborhoods did not have uh, the, um, the uh, pull in terms of policy and decision-making to fight against this. Um, and so this kind of gave a national platform to some of those issues, specifically after protests in 1982 um, in Warren County, North Carolina. Um, and so that was when they were able to see a clear line between race and economic background and locations of where certain hazardous waste facilities went. Um, and then that the next step after that was when um, then President Clinton signed the executive order on environmental justice. Um, and so that was a start for EPA to be more engaged in environmental racism and environmental justice. But till this day, there are very few, if any, binding requirements that requires comply compliance um, inside of the federal government, but then outside of the federal government as well when there are environmental decisions being made. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. I think the timing of NEPA um, while it does have a deep kind of focus on the environment is timely given the the that 1969 dated and as it focused on the civil rights movement and voting rights act and all those other acts being passed at the federal level. I'll now speak to median household income, which has improved. Um, so from 1967 to 2018, the median household income for Black Americans increased about 27%. So it's difficult to present these numbers because of inflation. So I'm using um, $2018 to make this reference. So the median household income for Black Americans in 1967 was $4,808 in $1967. That represents around $33,000 in 2018 dollars. So in 2018, the median household income was about $41,935, which represents that 27% increase. It should be noted that Black Americans still have the lowest household income compared to all other Americans, but we have the markedly um, highest rate of increase. The improvement in during that same time period from 1967 to 2018 for white Americans represented about a 2.3% increase. And so we're increasing about 27% or about nine times higher um, than white Americans as a whole. And so that's something to be celebrated, although the value is still significantly lower. Did I hear correctly that you said that where Blacks are, their increase has been greater in terms of median household income compared to other races? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, it seems like that's the same sort of trend as um, as we were talking about with life expectancy that I think it's still like a game of catch up that's being played. Um, um, and uh, 
I wonder where, if we were to kind of go back and look at all the data that we pulled, like where are some of the most significant changes and pivots happened? Um, but I don't think there's a specific time period. I think, you know, maybe in the 90s, certain things happened. And in 2000s, I'm sure after the kind of historic years that we've seen recently, there'll be a lot more trends that come to follow in the next few years about where we see a pivot in potential upward mobility or growth or potential declines for, for Black Americans as well. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the emphasis of the next two categories that I'll get into, which are unemployment rate and poverty rate. So income, unemployment rate, poverty rate, all metrics of kind of economic indicators. And thankfully, we do see lots of progress here for Black Americans. In 1963, the Black unemployment rate was 10.9%. The white unemployment rate was about 5%, so it was about twice as high. In 2018, this is looking at fourth quarter in October, or yeah, the start of the fourth quarter in October, the Black unemployment rate was 6.2%, and the white unemployment rate was about 3.3%, and that national average was about 3.7%. And so we have experienced a greater overall decline in unemployment. However, it is still twice as high as that of white Americans. And so the gap is still wide, but our percentage has declined. And so when Martin Luther King Jr. speaks about Black men being unable to find work, he's speaking to that 10% or probably higher at the time unemployment rate. And we're still seeing about a 6% unemployment rate for Black Americans across the board. Um, and that I'm going to jump to educational attainment, just to speak to how those things are related. And so in 1964, 27% of Black Americans had at least a high school diploma. And in 2019, 86% of Black Americans had at least a high school diploma. So that's about a 64 percentage point increase. And for white Americans in 1964, this was 56% compared to 92% in 2019. And so while we see um, a greater percentage point increase in educate in high school diplomas for Black Americans, we still see twice as large of an unemployment rate between Black Americans and white Americans as we move from uh, 1964 to 2019. Yeah, I wonder how much of that speaks to, um, again, and this could be a different episode, but it like speaks to um, one discrimination, but then also access to um, opportunities. Um, as we were just kind of talking about the geography of where you live, not all uh, geographies are equal in terms of industry um, and opportunities for income growth. Um, and the consistent employment. Um, and then two, as we even take it back to what uh, Dr. King spoke about in the beginning of this episode, that clip that we listened to about childhood, um, about what you, what you experience in your childhood. Um, and there's a quote I like um, that is, you can't be what you can't see. And so if you're not seeing opportunities and um, uh, from people that you know, your own view of opportunities in terms of employment or education um, can also be limited, which is a really sad reality. Yeah, you're totally right in terms of 
access and geography. And I'll just bring up another point which we mentioned in this episode is incarceration. Once you have been convicted or even in some instances kind of charged with things, that's on your record forever. And I wonder how much of now knowing that more Black Americans than white Americans are incarcerated or even on parole or on probation, how that plays into their ability to find and secure jobs. And so while the education piece might be improving, if you graduated high school and then got a charge, how does that impact your ability to get a job now? And so that changes some of those dynamics, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that's really, that's really true. Um, and so I think in terms of kind of the, how all of those things relate. Maybe once you um, make it to the mountaintop, you might decide to start a business. <laughs> um, you might decide you want to be your own boss and that you do not want to work for other people. Um, and so in 1969, there were approximately 322,000 um, businesses that were considered minority owned. Um, and so that is a business that could be anybody who identifies as a person of color. Um, but about half of those businesses in 1969 were black owned. So about 163,000 businesses um, and their total revenue was 4.5 billion at the time. Um, and there's a whole other discussion to be had about the impact of black owned businesses during the civil rights movement um, that I'll just plug there. Um, as we try to keep this episode short, but there's a lot, there's a lot of juice <laughs> to get out. Um, and so the numbers as recently as 2012 saw that there were, that black owned businesses um, increased to two, there's now 2 million black owned businesses in the United States. And so from just a little over 150,000 businesses to now 2 million black owned businesses, um, that generate 150 over 150 billion in gross revenue. But it is important to know that 150 billion sounds like a lot, but that's less than one percent of the nation's gross revenue. Um, and I think some of the we talked about what happened and what took place during history that allowed for certain things to take place and for successes to happen. And so in 1969, President Nixon established the Office of Minority Business Enterprise. Um, which dedicated, um, which was a federal agency that dedicated resources exclusively to increasing um, access for minority-owned businesses um, and what counts as a minority-owned business and making sure that they're able to secure contracts um, and um, have opportunities and designations for their um, minority-owned status. I'm going to drop in two plugs here. First, we, the Four Degrees Industries podcast, have an episode out from season one titled Hashtag Support Black Business, which came out on February 16th of our year, 2021. And we interviewed three Black businesses and we went into a lot of data around entrepreneurship, the growth of Black businesses, the emphasis on spending money with Black-owned businesses. And I'll just highlight that Black women have the highest rate of entrepreneurship across all um, ethnic groups. And so that Black-owned business um, emphasis is very important for creating and generating your own wealth. And then secondly, I'd like to plug that there are several 
financial institutions creating funds for Black developers. So if you're out here listening to our podcast and you buy real estate and you develop real estate, Amazon has a housing equity fund and um, National Affordable Housing Trust Fund also has a Black Developers Capital Initiative. And so these are entities that are out here trying to give y'all money, well, lend it, trying to lend y'all money to um, build and develop mixed income housing across the, the country. And so opportunities are abound to learn more, not only about entrepreneurship, but to gain more opportunities if you are presently an entrepreneur in that real estate space. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I definitely recommend listening to that episode as well. Um, and interesting that you mentioned the specifics around lending, um, because as we've seen a huge growth in Black-owned businesses and entrepreneurship in the last um, 60 years, um, a survey um, from a subsidiary of NerdWallet, um, and I'll have the link in the show notes, found that in 2020, um, about 38% of Black-owned businesses said that they felt discouraged from applying for loans. Um, and that black owned business, black business owners often receive less business financing. And when they do, they're at higher interest rates. Um, and so, you know, we see a lot of black owned businesses that are persevering, thriving in abundance, um, and still every day they have to fight and it is not easy. Um, so to all of our black owned, to our, all of our black business owners out there, we truly, truly salute you. So I'm glad that we were able to have this episode to not only honor um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but also to take time to reflect on our progress as Black Americans in America and look at social, economic, health, and housing um, kind of metrics to assess our overall improvement in this nation. And so we looked at home ownership which unfortunately didn't receive a decline. We looked at some nutrition and incarceration rates, which remained the same. But then we saw a bunch that had improved life expectancy, median household income, unemployment, poverty, education, and the percentage of businesses that are owned by uh, Black people. And so I feel you know, enthused about this episode. And while there's still a lot of progress to go, there are still gaps among Black Americans and white Americans, there are still disproportionate um, levels of chronic illness and unemployment and poverty among Black people. But I think there is a lot to celebrate and a lot to recognize that the contributions of all of the men and women who championed the civil rights movement in the 60s um, contributed, and then again in the 90s, contributed to opportunities for um, Black Americans today. I mean, I think about my own personal life and the things that my grandfather had to go through, him being born in the 30s into a world that was completely segregated, how he had difficulty borrowing for a loan, difficulty going to college and all those things and how I'm not going to say my life has been a cakewalk, but compared to his, it has been significantly improved, um, even though there are still many challenges. We didn't even get into police brutality and violence against uh, Black people at random and how those things still persist. But it was, the goal of this episode was kind of to be refreshing and to say, it's not all bad. We, we made some progress, but don't allow this progress to um, 
dampen your efforts of championing for change is what I, I guess I want to end with. Yeah, I honestly, I think you summed it all up. Um, I think that's a really positive and like, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about things that can be improved and struggles and things that came up along the conversation. Um, but I think there's still a lot to be excited about and to remember the, a lot of the stresses that we take on and carry that are coming from generations before us. Um, and so when you feel that weight on your back, it is okay to sometimes just sit down and say, I'm gonna just take it one day at a time. Um, so thank you again for tuning in with us this week. We hope, um, that this, this episode was informative for you. Um, you can catch us on social media on Instagram or Twitter at the number four degrees pod. And we drop episodes every other Tuesday. Peace out y'all.